Welcome to the Besties with Breasties podcast. Sarah Hall here. I am a certified health and wellness coach, athletic trainer, mom, and breast cancer survivor. I help women overcome their own mind drama to make mind shifts that open up the possibility for their most empowered and energetic life. And I am Beth Wilmus, author, speaker, and founder of a human investment organization, otherwise known as a nonprofit called Faith Through Fire. Our mission is to reduce the fear and anxiety that breast cancer patients feel and replace it with hope and a path toward thriving. This podcast is about our experiences with breast cancer and life after as young survivors and moms. How was your Mother's Day? It was, I got got a new plant. Oh my gosh, you're such a nerd. Nerd! I have so many plants. It's not even funny. Is that what Eric and the girls gave you? Yeah, it's a big fiddly fig tree. Ooh, yeah. Oh, a fig tree? Yeah, fiddly fig. Oh, yeah, those are beautiful. Yeah, they look like a fiddle. Very designer. It is so. That's what's always in the magazine. Yeah, I was just going to say they're always in the magazine. I think I spent as much on the pot, though, as we did on the plant. So, yeah, well, like it was quite a plant investment. I was going to say those plants are not those those plants are not cheap at all. (laughs) No, they're not. But they do look good. Yeah, they do. Well, good. Yeah, Yeah. I had a a pretty good Mother's Day, too. My husband knows me so well that he offered to paint my daughter's room for me. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I hate painting. You totally were like. Wouldn't it be great if he if I showed up and he had painted the room and you? <laughs> yeah. So backstory <laughs> offline. Yeah. Ba- backstory on this is that Sarah and I were talking about it with an uh, with Joan, who will be on our show shortly. Yeah. But we were sitting around having a cup of coffee, and I was like, I wish that my husband could read my mind, and would paint my daughter's room for Mother's Day. And both Sarah and Joan go, don't fat be- chance. Yeah, fat <laughs> chance. Don't be disappointed when he doesn't do that. And I said, okay, yeah, you're right. And then on the way home, I called him to let him know I was on my way, and he said. Hey, just as an FYI, your Mother's Day present is that I'm going to paint Charlotte's room for you. Oh, and that's, boom. Yep. Just, that's totally acts of service love right there. Mm-hmm. He yeah. knows that's my love language. Oh, and I hate guy. And I hate painting. Yeah. So, yeah, it yeah. was a wonderful Mother's Day. Boom. Yeah, yeah. Our boobs in the news is related to Mother's Day. So I'm glad that we. Sweet. Mm-hmm, oh, yeah. I can't wait. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, guys. So today our guest is Cheryl Jackson, the president and co-founder of The Breakfast Club, which is a predominantly African-American support group and nonprofit in St. Louis. Their mission is to support and educate women concerning breast health, breast cancer prevention, and screening. She is a retired pediatric nurse practitioner who was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1992. Oh, good. So we got a survivor here. That's right. Yeah. So she is joined today by Brenda Carter, a retired federal employee who was first diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer back in 2009. So it was a long time to survive her. She and her husband joined the Breakfast Club back in 2010. Right. But before we do that, let's hear from our first sponsor. We did it. We fought our way to survivorship. But for some of us, our story unfolds to include lymphedema. Hearing this new diagnosis can be disheartening. But with the right care, it doesn't have to be the burden it once was. FlexiTouch Plus is a comfortable and convenient home management therapy, clinically proven to control swelling better than self-massage while reducing infection risk, outpatient visits, and lymphedema-related care costs. Talk to your doctor to see if the FlexiTouch pump is right for you. Learn more at tactilemedical.com. Well, welcome, Cheryl and Brenda. Thanks for being with us today. Good to be with you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. 
Cheryl, let's start with you. You were diagnosed with breast cancer in 1992 and chose to have a modified radical mastectomy and nine months of chemotherapy. What is, does that make you a 29-year survivor? Yes, I'm a 29-year survivor. Woo! Woo! That's <laughs> awesome. What an encouragement to all these newly diagnosed women to see you. Here you are thriving 29 years later. We, we look to you for hope. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, can you explain for those listening what a modified radical mastectomy is? Because I'm not even sure I really understand what that is. Yeah. Okay. Well, at the time, that was the treatment of choice. For uh, uh, That was an option. And what that means is uh, I opted to have my breast removed, which included the skin, the areola, the nipple, and some of the and lymph nodes. And so... I wasn't that well endowed in the first place, so it 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 worked out for me. Yeah, was did you did you find that at at the time they they're calling this a radical mastectomy? So was that choice kind of difficult for you to come to? You know, it really wasn't. You know, my husband and I made the decision together. He actually, you know, basically kind of said, "Whatever you decide is." is all right with me. I just want you to live. Oh, yeah. And and so that's why basically I decided on at that time on the treatment plan. Yeah. Now you're a nurse. So was being a, a nurse helpful to you in making these decisions regarding your treatment? Did you feel like your training kind of equipped you to handle this better than say if you didn't have that background? I think so. I mean, because I asked questions, the surgeon I had at the time, I had lots of confidence in him. And I was comfortable. Once I made the decision, I was comfortable with it. And I think that's really what matters. There are, of course, more options now. But I think even now, when you look at your situation, you talk to your physician, and you make your decision, as long as you don't have any regrets, Mm. I think that's what's really important. You know, it sounds like you say the same thing that Sarah and I do to women that are diagnosed, that you have to be 100% confident in your decision mm-hmm. for you and not let anybody else influence you so that you don't, you know, second guess yourself or feel resentful towards somebody else down the road. I think that's so important. And everybody feels differently about it. Brenda, what was it like for you? You're you're also a survivor. Uh, my situation was a little different because I have a family, a family history of breast cancer. Mm, okay. So my mother has had a double had had a double mastectomy by the time I was diagnosed. And I had a 28-year-old daughter who had had a mastectomy. So we had a family surgeon that we were very confident in. That's kind of nice. I mean, it's convenient to have somebody that you've already like put your faith and trust into that's that's taking care of your family and you know that you trust them and, and you know, they're supporting you. So that probably felt. How did you know that you had a genetic component to your family history? Did Did you just have so many women that were diagnosed that you guys had the testing or how did you know? Actually, we did the Bracken testing and they came back negative. So it's not a family history gene. Oh, wow. Interesting. That's really interesting. So you just had a lot of breast cancer in your family, but it wasn't attributed to that particular gene. Yes. Huh. Wow. Okay. And you said your daughter was proactive and had a double mastectomy and your mother had uh, already had. My mother had to double. My daughter had just one side with just mastectomy. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So by the time that happened to you, were you prepared emotionally or was it still a shock? It was a shock that it happened, that it happened because I thought we were being proactive, Mm -hmm. but still 
having people around me who had been through it before, who could kind of walk you through it and who having medical people around that you were confident in made a big difference. Yeah. Now, Cheryl, you're very open about the fact that chemotherapy put you in early menopause. What was that like? And did you feel prepared for those side effects? First, I met my oncologist. I was introduced (laughs) to my oncologist prior to my surgery. And and I have to say my tumor, it was like estrogen made it grow. So I had to avoid anything with estrogen in it. And Mm -hmm. there were real there wasn't really anything I could take for the menopause. I think I had maybe a month free with no ups and down symptoms with anything before the menopause kicked in. I think the menopause for me, I had all of the symptoms. I had the the hot flashes and I had the cold and the mood swings. Mm. And that was kind of rough because I couldn't take anything. And I had to literally just kind of suck it up. Yeah, because what were providers saying at that time about what to do about it? Was there a lot of help? Because Sarah and I feel like even now today, there's so much more than there used to be. But Mm -hmm. we're still frustrated by the lack of support for when, you know, when young women are thrust into menopause or even just the warning like, hey, this is this is going to put you into menopause. And then it's like, period, that's it. We're not going to tell you about what that's going to be like. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So what do you feel like there was support or did you were you kind of made aware of what that was going to be like? Well, you know what? I feel like I had the support, but there wasn't really anything that my oncologist recommended me doing. You know, now the suggestion of, you know, walking and trying to do things, you know, to reduce stress and all of that. But but nothing worked for me. And so I just had to basically kind of tough it out. And I worked even when I went through chemo. And in a way, when I look back, I'm glad it I'm glad for that because it made me focus on something else beside myself, you know, the menopause and but it was very, very tough. And I think too, I had a very supportive husband. And I could tell him, you know, kind of what was going on because sometimes I was grouchy. I was grouchy <laughs> and hard to live with. And, you know, and so. I think that helps, too. And I had a very supportive family. But I there's just not a lot that you can do when you're going through the menopause. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like mind over matter. It -hmm. gets better, but then also it comes back. Yeah. And it's very severe. I mean, for Mm -hmm. Sarah and I, you know, we were raising kids and we're, you know, in our 30s and all of a sudden it's like you're in menopause almost overnight Mm -hmm. and it's very extreme. And, you know, people weren't meant to go into menopause over one night. It was (laughs) not with young children. No, (laughs) no, no. We always say that you're not supposed to be parenting in menopause for a reason. You know, that irritability (laughs) and things that that's something that struggle is real. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't know. You know, it's, it's really hard to raise kids when you're like that because you know mm-hmm. they don't deserve it and you don't want to be that way. And yeah, so, right. you know, that's right. part of the emotional struggle that people don't talk about. It's the menopausal symptoms, mm-hmm. but then it's yeah. also the emotional kind of piece of it of how you feel knowing that that's... I think it's because you lose your relatedness to the other 30-year-olds out there. Like, 
Yeah. You know, you don't you're not the 30 year old that everyone else is like struggling with their periods or whatever. You're struggling with irritability and grouchiness. So, right. Right. Yeah, and, and you're you're talking to your kids trying to, you know, parent them in a you know, I, I knew that I was way more relaxed before I was on my hormone suppression therapy than mm-hmm. I am as a parent now. And it, it's yeah. frustrating. Yeah. Well, my both of my kids at the time were in college. So, oh, yeah. which, which I'm glad, but both <laughs> of them are in college. And so it, my husband had to deal with me, but I tell you, we, we started to incorporate humor in some of the things that I was going through, which made me, you know, like be aware more of like, when I knew I was getting grouchy, I just kind of, you know, I just kind of went to the side for a while and just kind of <laughs> excused out, yourself walk or did yeah. something yeah you know and he would say to me what's wrong your little people don't want to play with my little people <laughs> 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 you know, we'd, have a, we'd have a laugh but it oh. really wasn't anything I could take medically uh and my oncologist was very very careful about anything that I took that she didn't know about Yeah. Now, it sounds like you are very fortunate to have a loving husband. And I think Sarah and I were the same way. You know, our husbands just wanted us to be around. Mm -hmm. They were very compassionate when it came to our symptoms and our side effects. What about you, Brenda? You and your husband ended up joining the Breakfast Club together. Did you how was your marriage impacted by your diagnosis? My husband and I both feel that uh, we our marriage grew stronger. Mm. He had some medical treatment, having been a medic in the Army, and he had been an administrator of a hospital in the Air Force. So he had enough medical background to know how to adjust to my moods. Good. So, <laughs> he had the training, so. the proper training. Not to support right. you, but how to support himself. <laughs> right. So I know it, when it, to go. It strengthened us in a lot of ways. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, it, I mean, it sounds like you guys had good support, you know, at home and with your spouses. But did you, both of you, I want to hear from both of you. How do you feel like your faith helped you in your breast cancer journey? Well. I've been in my church since for almost 50 years. And, but yet when it took me five years to get up and basically make an announcement when I went at my five year mark, when, you know, I got diagnosed. So you you didn't tell your church until you were five years post-diagnosis? Yeah, that's right. Now I, I didn't not openly because at that time, you know, I wasn't really ready to come out publicly. I would talk to women privately, but I just wasn't ready to to share. And when I was, it was at the church. And basically it was my five month, it was my five year. And when I got up to make the announcement, I told them that some probably knew, but a lot of people didn't know. And I just kind of shared, just did a testimony and shared. And as a result of that, because there were about six women in the congregation who nobody knew they were survivors. It was almost still Mm. hush hush. And the breakfast club got started because there was a young lady who had just been diagnosed and she was married, had two young kids. And as a result of helping her cope, I asked her if she would like it. We could go to breakfast. I had two other friends who were survivors. And that's basically how the Breakfast Club got started. 
Oh. Breakfast with friends cures anything. <laughs> it's true. That's right. Especially a four hour one. But, that's for sure. It's therapy. So, I'm interested in this, Cheryl. So was it because you just didn't feel emotionally ready to share that piece of you? Or was there a part of you that felt shame about the diagnosis? Or was it more just that you didn't want people to know because you just felt private about it? I really wasn't ready to come out publicly. You know, my husband kept telling me, he said, why don't you just l- share with people your you're a pediatric nurse. You've done this. You've done all that. And I was like, I'm not ready. I'm mm-hmm. just not ready to do it publicly. But I wasn't ready that Sunday. I mean, I wasn't mm-hmm. ready. I, I didn't come to church to say that, but it just happened. And, and you know, I'm pretty grounded in my faith. I wasn't ashamed of, you know, having a mastectomy and that year with the chemo and all that, it had its ups and downs, but I still managed to go to church. So people didn't really know what I was going through until I basically publicly admitted it. And then, of course, once I admitted it, then, you know, a lot of this, my whole life changed. Mm-hmm. My I, whole life changed. I after. think it's interesting that you use the word admitted like yeah like shared it. Yeah. yeah you you shared what was happening with you i, I feel I, like admitted is like i peed on the carpet over there and now i'm admitting that it happened <laughs> like you know you you want you want to i i feel like saying shared it has you know less of a shame on me kind of connotation yeah, yeah yeah i don't ever now with my family and my extended family oh everybody knew yeah. everybody knew but I just wasn't ready until then to go outside of my immediate family. circle. Yeah. Sarah and I have talked about this before because I'm a very private person. And so we always joke about how it's hilarious that we're doing the work we're doing now because obviously it's all front and center. I mean, I talk mm. about breast cancer all the time now. But when I found out about my diagnosis, I felt very private about it. And I wasn't ready to kind of come out about it either. And yeah. But I will say, and I w- I'm curious to see if you feel the same way, once you do share that piece of you mm-hmm. and you're open about it, I found it very healing. And I still do to talk mm-hmm. about it. I find it healing to be able to use my experience to kind of relate to other women. Do you feel that way? Do you feel that way, Brenda? I feel it's very healing too. In my case, our faith gave us the strength to make it through the treatments and the side effects Mm -hmm. and my reoccurrence. Mm -hmm. But being a private person also, we told my husband is a deacon in the church. So we told the minister and the deacons. Mm -hmm. So they knew. But as far as standing in front of the congregation and telling everyone else, no. Mm-hmm. After my recovery, though, I have referred other people to the Breakfast Club once I become aware of their situation. Mm-hmm. Sure. Was your faith shaken at all when you had a recurrence? Where did you think that you had left this behind you, and then were shook to find that there was a reoccurrence, or were you? Did you handle it kind of in stride? How was that? I think I handled it in stride because I was looking through some old papers, and I found out that when I was originally diagnosed. They gave me some information about the possibility of recurrence. Mm -hmm. So I was reading through that. And as I read through that and with the confidence I had in my oncologist from before, I was I was comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So something that we've kind of been talking about in the last couple episodes is sometimes it sounds as though you ladies were really you really owned your breast cancer experience. You didn't feel a lot of shame in it, although maybe you felt a little private about it. But there is. 
some thought in the African-American community that there is a stigma tied to breast cancer. And it sounds like you kind of understand those feelings. And so that puts you in a unique position to address it. Before we kind of go down that path, do you guys want to do some boobs in the news? Are you guys familiar with our boobs in the news (laughs) segment? No, I'm not. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, Sarah, you want to tell them what Boobs in the News is? So, Boobs in the News is a funny segment where we read real tweets from people or ridiculous news stories. Yeah. So it's just a funny story in the news. So so we get, we get to kind of break up the, the, the seriousness with a, a funny. With some boobs. Okay. All right. Boobs in the news. Boobs in the news. Boobs in the news. You guys ready for this? Here's here. This is from our friends at the Daily Dumbass. So Sarah and I were talking about we had a really good Mother's Day this year. Did you guys have a good Mother's Day? Yes. Very great. Yes, I did, too. Okay, that not everybody had a good Mother's Day. It says even if you gave your mom a lame Mother's Day gift, at least you didn't do this. Oh, boy. Okay, a 22 year old guy named Andrew in Wisconsin lives at home with his mom. He apparently got really mad on Mother's Day because he couldn't find his phone. There's so much wrong with that sentence already. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's 22 years old. He's mad that he can't find his phone on Mother's Day. Right. So he wound up tasing his mom in the neck. What? That's how, do, how does it go from looking for your phone to tasing your mom? Tasing your mom in the neck. <laughs> it says he was arrested for battery and disorderly conduct. And on top of that, Andrew's girlfriend was also arrested because she had punched his mom in the face three what? days, three days earlier. Oh, three days earlier. What is what is wrong? So Aww. the part about this that I think is kind of interesting or funny is that. It says, why the hell doesn't she kick them out of her house? Right. Like, why are you letting your son and his girlfriend live with you when he's tasing you and she's assaulting you on Mother's Day? Yeah. Happy Mother's Day. Here's a tase. Right. Right. Can you imagine? Have you ever ever watched somebody get tased on TV? I have. Yes. It looks painful. Yes. I've also tried the dog collars just to see how bad they are. (laughs) You know what? I have too. (laughs) That's, so we've what, kind of, that, what does we've that kind say of about us? Ourselves. What does that say about I don't us that know. we both tried? I just be- want to make sure it's not hurting nobody else. Is that why you did it? I don't know. I just wanted to see what it felt like. Yeah. Oh like, my gosh. Feels like an electric shock. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. There's something wrong with us. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Brenda and Cheryl do not shock themselves with dog collars. Yeah. <laughs> no, we have not. I have not. All right. Those no, are. Okay, so maybe not. wear the boobs. <laughs> yeah, wear the boobs for doing that and for admitting it on yeah. the air. Oops. Oopsie. All right. Yeah. There's our boobs in the news. <laughs> boobs in the news. Boobs in the news. Boobs in the news. Okay, guys. So we're back. At this point, especially in St. Louis, a lot of people know that there's a big disparity in the mortality rate for black women versus their white counterparts in breast cancer. But the reasons behind those disparities are multifaceted. You were kind of private about coming out, but you guys also were at the same time pretty vocal and pretty Mm -hmm. confident in your decision making. I mean, you have a nursing background. You guys had supportive husbands. Mm -hmm. Do you... What are your guys' thoughts on why some black women are so fearful of medical care, both preventatively and then after a diagnosis? There is a lot of mistrust in the African-American community with the medical community. Mm -hmm. And part of it is because there is a real history of the African-American community, black and brown communities being used in experiments, people not knowing that they were a part of that, 
the Tuskegee, even, mm-hmm. even issues. So there, there's a real history there. There's a real history of real things happening in the community. So therefore, there's a lack of trust. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's important to mention, too, like the Tuskegee uh, experiments. You know, right. what? I, I was shocked when I realized that that ended in the 70s. I mean, we're yeah. not talking about like hundreds, hundreds of years, years ago. ago. We're yeah. talking about yeah. in the 70s. In our lifetimes. Right. Yeah. right. right. Which yeah. is, is is appalling and mm-hmm. disgusting. And it's it's really no wonder that people then would have medical distrust. Mm-hmm. Something right. I see a lot that I think is interesting is that sometimes the medical community will say, well, we just need to educate people. We just need mm-hmm. to educate everyone. And Sarah yeah. and I have talked about our own issues with medical distrust. And yeah. we have haven't shared those same experiences mm-hmm. as the African-American community, but we still have from time to time experienced medical distrust. Right. Is it so much a lack of knowledge or is it, to your point, more about just fear, fear of, it's, you know, being taken advantage of or not pr- receiving the care that they deserve? It's both. I think more education needs to happen. That it's It's mistrust. It's fear. That is why a lot of African-American people don't participate in research because research, you know, I mean, personally, even with my medical background, I have come a long way when it comes to research. In the beginning, when the Breakfast Club really got started, you would say research to me and I'd be like, that's a closed book. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not going down that avenue, you know, mm-hmm. however. Through the years, what's happened is we have invited researchers in to talk to us, to be Mm -hmm. speakers, to answer our questions. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there have been women on their own, once they heard about maybe a research project, would participate. So it's a bit of a double edged sword, right? Because we can't understand how black women are going to respond to treatments if they don't participate. And yet and they won't true. participate if they're scared to participate. Right. So. And, and it sounds like you're true. using the Breakfast Club, which I mean, for good, good reason to help educate to help reduce the fear. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Who's yeah. better? Who's in a better position to talk to these things mm-hmm. than two women who have been there done that? Yeah. Well, the majority of the women in the Breakfast Club are breast cancer survivors. Ninety percent mm-hmm. of them are survivors. But we also have a physician on our board who is very, very, very knowledgeable. She's able to really translate medical information in a way where people can understand what she's saying. And just the fact that we've had speakers there now. We've also worked with uh, research projects and that kind of thing. I'm on some boards at Washington University and You know, and so through the years I've grown and I've and so I feel like I don't have the same feelings that I started out with. I participated in some some research projects. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's what's helped. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know. Brenda may want to speak on it, too. Well, basically what I think the fear and knowledge is a combination Also, the thing we have to realize is you have to establish a relationship Mm -hmm. with your doctor. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough that my, as I said, the family surgeon, he referred me to the oncologist and the radiation specialist. Mm -hmm. So, but I have over the years encountered people who were going to the same oncologist who were not comfortable with him. Mm -hmm. And we need to realize that people have 
It's a personal relationship that you have to establish. And if you don't have it, you should move on. We, in, in our choosing um, the right provider for you episode, we talked about how there are kind of two kinds of people. And there's the ones who just want the facts and they want to get in, they want to get out. And then there's the ones who are more relational. And just creating that relationship helps build the trust with your provider. And then you can feel better cared for throughout. And it sounds like that is more what the community needs in general is just those relationships with their providers. Mm-hmm. Also, because my condition was triple negative, I also participated in a clinical trial. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just having that relationship there. And I think in the medical community today, they're they're kind of operating in this medical environment to triage and treat the disease. And mm-hmm. sometimes because they're so rushed and they're running from room to room, that some of that connection can be sometimes missing. And so I I agree that you have to feel comfortable with your providers or else you're not going to get optimal care. You know, there's just always going to be something between you and them. So, Cheryl, you kind of explained that the Breakfast Club started when you guys all went to breakfast to support this one young survivor. Can you guys Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the different programs that you have? You have a lot of you have a lot going on. We do. We do. We have like our bra and breast form program. And it's not always about just cosmetics. I mean, basically, it's for balance. It's for everything. So we work with Medical West. We send the ladies there to be professionally fit, especially those who have no insurance, who is medically underserved and uninsured. Mm-hmm. Which and, can we just uh, say uh, for a moment how wonderful Medical West is because they Medical are West. so caring. Yeah, about oh, they are. Yeah, they yeah. are, and we've worked with this, worked with them for a number of years. And we also have, you know, a lot of women when they get breast cancer, they uh, sometime later they'll get lymphedema. We've set aside some funds to try to help ladies get gloves and sleeves, which are not a part of Medicare or Medicaid. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that that crazy when that's the standard of care and yet they aren't provided to women who have lymphedema? Mm -hmm. We're going to, we're going to provide you breast cancer care and then we're going to cut you off. Right. Yeah. Right. Because it's a progressive disease. So if you don't maintain where you are with the sleeve, it just gets worse and worse. And then you're increasing your risk of hospitalizations and infections and so I think that that is a critical need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and some insurances may provide it, but Medicare and Medicaid does not. Right. Yeah. So yeah. then we have a program we call Faith on the Move. We work with churches and health ministries at the churches where, and also we're working with Siteman, Missouri Baptist and Mercy. Our buddies work with the church, like I said, the church, the hospitals, that kind of thing. And women can get their mammograms there. Even during COVID, we were able to screen over 300, almost mm. 350. And that's actually to go there to the church and navigate the ladies through the, through it. Okay. That's amazing. And our breast health, yeah, and our breast health buddy program, these are survivors themselves. And when we get newly diagnosed women, they'll either call through the breakfast club line or it's sometimes word of mouth. And they will buddy newly diagnosed women for up to nine months. That means now before COVID, sometimes our buddies would go to the appointments with them and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But they're still able to do some things, stay in touch on the phone or, you know, our ladies get comfort kits, deliver comfort kits. 
And so they're able to do that. And I think even during COVID, I think we had maybe this past year, we were close to maybe like 20 newly diagnosed women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, year. I think especially because of COVID, I mean, you had heightened yeah. patient anxiety, you had, yeah. la- you had lack of support in the medical environment because mm-hmm. they couldn't yeah. bring their loved ones in. So and people right. just skipping their routine screening because COVID. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. So yeah. I think emotional yeah. support in your buddy program was just yeah. so needed during that time, yep. you know, and we right. should, we should see referrals go up at that time because the hospitals weren't able to provide that support on site at all. Before we wrap up with where people can find you, let's hear from our second sponsor. SSM Health is a proud sponsor of the Besties with Breasties podcast. One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer during their lifetime. Early detection is key and keeping up to date on yearly mammograms could be life-saving. At SSM Health, we offer patients in the St. Louis area online scheduling for mammograms, including next day appointments. Visit ssmhealth.com slash schedule ma'am to make your appointment now. So, Cheryl, where can people find The Breakfast Club? Well, I can give you our number and you can call in. It's 314-972-8883. Do you guys have a website or are you on social media? Yeah, we have a website, uh, www.breakfastclubstl.org. Love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story, both Cheryl and Brenda, and the work that you're doing in the community. It is so needed. If anyone listening feels like their own experience and feelings, they resonate kind of with what Cheryl and Brenda shared, please reach out to them in the Breakfast Club for support. Yeah. Thank you for being with us today, Cheryl and Brenda. Well, thank thank you you very much. All right, guys. Until next time. See ya. If you are a breast cancer survivor and you love Besties with Breasties, make sure you join our survivorship support network at faiththroughfire.org to gain access to exclusive episodes that are ad-free and uncensored.